0: I'm Richard Dockran and I'm a writer and consultant trying to make the world better. I run the fundraising and social change agency, Change Start, and am the founder of the not-for-profit Life Squared. In this podcast series, I talk to people who are making the world better, not just those tackling big issues at a global scale, but also those working at a local level, or in less obvious areas too, from academia to teaching. The aim is not to explore people's personal stories, as there are plenty of other podcasts that do this. Instead, I want to find out more about the issues that these people are working on, how they approach them, and why they matter. In the end, I want to show the extraordinary range of different ways in which people are trying to make things better. My conversation in this podcast is with Andrew Copson. Andrew is the Chief Executive of Humanists UK, a charity seeking a tolerant world where rational thinking and kindness prevail. Andrew has been a leading voice in the humanist movement for many years and has contributed to a lot of important political and social campaigns in the UK and beyond, from those fighting discrimination and injustice, through to initiatives to help people get the emotional support they need at critical moments in life. I've worked with Andrew on various projects over the years, including developing some of Humanist UK's publications on the big questions of life, and conducting some big strategic reviews of their work. I interviewed Andrew at the Humanist UK offices. He's always a fascinating person to speak to, so I hope you enjoy our conversation. Here it is, and I'll be back with you at the end to reflect on a few things from it. Okay, so Andrew, what do you do? (laughs) Well, I
1: run Humanists UK, which for the last 125 years has been promoting humanism. Uh, what is humanism, you may ask? So I'll answer.
0: You'll do my job. You? <laughs> yes. Nice
1: and um, Well, the word humanism for the last hundred years or so has been used to uh, describe a certain approach to life. So, a humanist approach to life is one that uh, doesn't look to any life to come, believes that this one life that we have is the only life that we have. And as a result of that, uh, humanists seek to make meaning, to live well, to find fulfillment, and to help others do the same in this one life we have. They're people who believe um, that the best way to understand the universe and reality in this world we find ourselves in is through science and reason rather than um, supernatural religious explanations. And they're people who try and leave this world better than they they found it. So that non-religious view, uh, that approach to life, although it wasn't as common 125 years ago, is now shared by millions of people in the UK and it's the job of Humanist UK to try and reach out to those people. We also provide community services like funerals, weddings, pastoral support in prisons and hospitals for non-religious people, and education resources for schools to talk about humanism. So it's a, a wide variety of, of, of work that I've found myself responsible for.
0: There's a huge scope, yes. And I guess going down to it, to kind of simplify it, what do you think is the social need that you're addressing?
1: That's an interesting question. I mean, we're, we're addressing different social needs. I think that with something like ceremonies, so if you think about funerals, for example, And that's the oldest ceremony type that we have been doing funerals for over a century. And the origin of our provision of funerals was that people who uh, were not religious, but instead had a view of the human person as important in their own right, um, embedded in relationships with other human beings and a part of this natural world, needed to find a way, wanted to find a way to mark the death um, and the loss of a person, and also uh, find a way that they could give structure to their grief. And that's um, where humanist funerals came in. You know, Humanist celebrants are trained to work with families to create um, a ceremony, in this case a funeral, but in other ceremony types, obviously at weddings and so on, we offer those as well, that is completely reflective of the person in the situation. So whereas in the past, this, talking hundred years ago, whereas in the past people have been confined to a religious option which typically instead of focusing on uh, a person in, in the context of a funeral for example would focus on the life to come or some religious beliefs or um, you know some quite ab- abstract sometimes ideas instead people wanted uh, non-religious people wanted to focus on the person and that's the sort of uh, need that we address um, there is a, a human need to mark events to bring structure and meaning Um, to occasions, uh, and meaning to our experience. And one of the needs that we meet through ceremonies, for example, is that social need. And then other social needs we meet, um, through the promotion of humanism itself, I suppose, Uh, we try to meet the need that
0: people have for a framework to make sense of their lives. So do you think that that is absent in modern society as religion has moved to the borders?
1: I don't think it's absent. Actually, I think that we're all of us inescapably making meaning all the time uh, in our minds, um, and you know most people uh, do it perfectly well. And I actually don't think that religion has had much of an influence on that in the last couple of hundred years. I think that you know most ordinary people um, have not typically in the past resorted to religious um, frameworks to make sense of, of their life. But I do think that there is a value in being able to draw on uh, people who have thought about this a lot. So I, th- I think that the, the value that we might add to people's meaning-making is that we offer them access to the humanist tradition, which contains, of course, many great thinkers um, in Britain, from Bertrand Russell to George Eliot to Ian Forster to you know, Clement Attlee, who was a humanist for every flavour of your, of your choice. Um, we you know, offer access to that tradition of thought Um, By reflecting on what other people have thought about these big questions confronting humanity, we can often give fodder to our own meaning-making. But I think that that's a supportive role. I wouldn't like to pretend that people who don't have access to humanist UK are not making any meaning.
0: Right. And could you... I mean, so I think, as you know, I think this is an incredibly interesting area. Can we unpack a little bit, maybe some of the areas of life or some of the questions you think... It's humanist perhaps a, a best place to help people answer and help people explore? Not, you're not necessarily trying to give people answers, but you're no. helping them to actually explore those. What, what sort of areas? Well, the sort of areas that people come to us to, to ask
1: about, um, because you know, people do do that, and our provision is guided by the, the requests for help that people make to us. The most common one um, is people who want uh, directing towards resources that will help them talk to their children That's interesting about, uh, about these questions. And I think this throws into relief, actually, the value in in explicitly thinking about these questions for yourself, not just sort of observing that you're doing okay morally and you're sort of making sense of life, so just carry on. Um, Because if we all live that way sort of implicitly, and most of us do, um, nonetheless, when a Little interrogator asks us, starts asking us difficult questions. I'm thinking of a child now. Mm, Um, You can mm. sometimes find yourself a little bit vulnerable and unable to provide the answers that you sort of have been living by all this time but haven't quite, um, uh, you know, put
0: into words. But also the answers that you thought you had completely nailed down. You know, I've I've, I've got to 47, I'm absolutely fine. But then when you're challenged on it, you think, oh my goodness, hang on, I haven't got a coherent particularly coherent set of views exactly. I'm making this up on the fly yes and that's how people can feel they
1: can feel um, that their their worldview their their approach to these questions is somehow incoherent or second best or even worse if they had a religious upbringing they might sort of secretly in the back of their minds think that their views now although they no longer have religious beliefs are somehow dependent on or parasitic on the religion they were brought up with so even though they have a perfectly good grounding um, for their morals now they don't they haven't quite made those links and so that's that's giving people not just resources to think about their own ideas, but also a certain confidence in their in mm. their in their views and ability to think about and to explain and to justify them.
0: What so, sort of topics are parents you know, asking you for it, to help open with kids?
1: Yeah, it's It's typically the, the the obvious ones that about you know fairness and morality and uh, and justice and so on. But also a lot of the parents who contact us have need ways to try and explain. Respect for other people. So typically, what will happen is their children have gone to school and there's been some sort of religious worship or something, and they right. don't know how to handle um, the discussions that their children have brought back home. Like, for example, trying to explain to a child that you know you should li- you should listen to and believe the teacher when they're talking about history, but not necessarily when they're talking about Jesus is actually quite a difficult, wow, conceptually okay. difficult to navigate. You know, yes, and then um, uh, if you know the child then asks, well, why why do we um, why do we do this thing, or why are we good, or why do we you know, give? Trying to explain the moral basis to that, um, when sometimes a child has um, at school been told that the moral basis of that is something religious, or you know, is is, a, is the example of Jesus, or whatever, is difficult.
0: So it's it's kind of how <coughs> to on the face of it, it sounds like how to navigate the world of values, but actually, it sounds it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's about how to navigate the world of ideas and perhaps to think critically about those things, it's about that emerging skill. Yeah,
1: values, ideas, and also identity as well, and the way that those three link together, I think is, is exactly what it's about. And that's quite nebulous. So, I mean, in the end, you end up often, if you find yourself in a position with an organisation trying to give answers to people, and people typically want quick answers, they don't want to sit down and engage with 14 volumes of Bertrand Russell or Margaret Knight or something in order to have their question answered. You sort of take a frequently asked questions approach, and that can be a little bit... Limiting sometimes, but then most people don't have much time to, to, to think about it. So that's one of the main things that we do. And then in the, in the last year, as you know, because you've been writing some of them, um, we have have tried to give more resources online at sort of a greater length, to, t- to touching on a greater range of questions.
0: Just going back to the comment you were saying about it being parents that are come, coming to you and saying, how do oh, yes. I have this? Um, does that suggest that perhaps there's not enough of this being done in schools as well so to embed some of the skills of whether it's thinking about values critical thinking or some of these other areas
1: yes i think so i think that the the pendulum goes back and forth on this and i think one of the problems in in england particularly is that there 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 are no really good sort of centrally provided resources about 10 years ago there was a program called social and emotional aspects of learning which produced great curriculum resources um, but also good resources for assemblies you know that would help with um, moral development and social development of children, and I think that that's still a gap um, for us. You know, it's still a gap in primary school training, teacher training. Because um, Humanist
0: UK does some education work, doesn't yeah, it? But not, but not in that. No, area? not
1: not directly. I mean, so we do we do a lot of resources about humanist approaches to to life and to moral questions and questions of belief, and they typically get used in, you know, religious education lessons in school, which is where, strangely, sort of humanism gets taught about. And we we do produce some resources for the wider personal and social development of young people, but, you know, the curriculum is so squeezed these days, and there's such an emphasis on knowledge subjects, if you can call them that, that those aspects, equally important aspects of children's development, can get squeezed out. So I do think that the need there is very great. I mean, there are lots of programmes, of course, that go around schools and run in schools and do, uh, you know, trying to sort of plug that gap. But there isn't really a, a central approach, and I think there, there there should be.
0: Can you give us an idea of what the, the achievements are that you're most proud of? Because you've been at Humanist UK for... Over a decade now—is that right? Yeah, as chief like exec? just a few weeks under a decade? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought <laughs> so it was something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's so, yeah, right. what, what, yeah, what would you say? I mean, not yeah, not just at Humanist UK, you've been working on humanism for, for most of your adult life, I guess. Uh, well, what, what would you say are some of the you know the, the biggest achievements you're most proud of in terms of the impact they've had? Well, I think that there are certain sort of policy
1: achievements, you know, that you 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 uh, you, you make. Um, in lobbying, a lot of the work that we do, which I haven't mentioned so far actually is, is political advocacy work with parliamentarians or with government. Um, and so there's some sort of changes that you can point to there. like for example, I uh, successfully had the law changed to um, stop faith schools from being able to expel pupils if they um, were non-religious. there you go, that's a small thing, but a big thing, um, in consequences. But that's not the sort of work that really brings you face-to-face with the human impact of of these things. I think probably the programme that um, does that most is the Pastoral Support Programme of Prisons and Hospitals. So up until about the late 1950s, um, Humanist UK, which was not called Humanist UK then, but the the organisation under its name then, had quite an extensive programme of uh, counselling. In fact... um, uh, we pioneered non-directive counselling in the UK, and
0: just to, just to clarify that pastoral care is counselling, uh, being being a, a, a listening ear to people That's right. in situations.
1: That's right. So I was going to say that we, we did counselling in the past, and then for some decades we didn't, um, because we assumed that uh, you know the secular profession of counselling would just take off and everyone would be provided for, and then as you as you as you correctly say, in the last few years, it was six years ago, um, we did begin to notice that 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 people's needs weren't being provided for exactly by that sort of um, mainstream counselling, even where it was available, which was was not available everywhere. And that there was something that people needed, which was a sort of less than a counsellor, but more than a friend, listening ear, sort of pastoral um, support, especially in prisons and hospitals, where we noticed the need for non-religious people because religious people had access to chaplains. Um, so aside from specific religious needs that people might have for prayer or for worship or whatever, um, the the recognition that people might want someone who thought the same thing as they did to talk to. You know, and when we were doing the focus groups um, to set up this scheme, that was really what came across. There so were people who, you know, guy in prison, his grandmother died, um, he couldn't go to her funeral. Um, obviously he was in prison, there weren't enough staff for any sort of release or whatever. And he wanted someone to talk to who understood how he felt about his grandmother's death, right? And he didn't think that she was going on or was living again in some other place. He thought that was, he'd lost his last chance to see her both and she was ill, um, but also to pay his respects to her at that final moment, you know. And, and there was a finality about that that he said to us in the focus group he didn't really think the chaplain could understand. But that if he had someone who could understand that finality and really understand it, um, and that he knew was like-minded he could have talked that through with them and of course in hospital there's just as many uh, you know, if not more cases of personal um, grief and uh, emotional disturbance that need talking through so that's the introduction of that scheme which was scoped out and then piloted and then introduced I think is probably one of the things that I'm proudest of in, in, in the ten years um, and now we're in a fifth of prisons and over half the uh, NHS trusts in England and Wales so and it's growing all the time. Wow. So I think I'm pleased about that. Um, mainly my last 10 years have been about growth. It's been sort of scaling up things that have worked like school programs. Like we're one of the largest school speaker
0: programs in the country. So things like that I'm quite proud of. And I was going to just, to, sorry to interrupt you, but just on that, so in, in the schools programme, the speakers yes. in schools, what impact do you think you're having for the kids there? So what, what social value is that adding that they might not
1: otherwise have? <laughs> I mean... Impact, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you can never tell with, well, you can never tell with, with most people. Area, yeah, yeah. Exactly. But with children especially. In terms of what it could be adding or should be adding... <laughs> yeah, in principle. <laughs> yeah. I think it does two things. I think, first of all, there are... Work about humanism in schools um, it does the same thing as any work about humanism does in society, in that it reaches out to people who um, may have this worldview... Um, but they don't know that it has a name, you know, um, and gives them confidence and resources and the facility to think about those ideas um, and to realise that they're coherent and well-founded and understand that, you know, right. they have a, even a good heritage and that many millions of people have shared them both today and over time. And some of the people who've made the best, greatest contributions to human welfare and flourishing over the existence of our species have had these beliefs. So, I mean, you know, when children are in that position, they would benefit from access to those ideas Uh, in the same way that anyone in society would. I suppose there's then a second benefit to children who don't have those ideas, who nonetheless can test their own uh, assumptions and beliefs against those ideas. Because, of course, it's always good to learn about things that are different from your own ideas, and your ideas might change um, as a result. Although that isn't a a purpose of of Humanist UK, interestingly. I mean... Um, our audience is the non-religious. We don't direct ourselves towards religious people and attempt to change their minds. Right. Our, the, the, the premise of our work, the foundation of our work, is the assumption that there is a large constituency in this country of people with humanist beliefs and values, and that our job is to connect with them rather than to convince others that they ought to adopt those beliefs and values. And if you look at the polling data in this country about a quarter of people, 25%, which is about half the non-religious, have basic humanist beliefs and values. Um, but only 6% of people identify as humanist, non-religious and humanist. And so, to some extent, part of our work is closing that gap between the 25% and the 6% to, to make people realise who have these beliefs and values that you know there is a word for it.
0: To stand Yes, to stand back and identify with it somehow. Exactly. I, th- I think that leads on to the, the next question quite well, in that... And the things that you've talked about so far you know it seems that the organization has some quite profound impacts on people's lives it's dealing with some of the some of the biggest issues that we face like you said big questions of life but also grief and identity and all these things and yet one of the challenges perhaps for it is that for many people these things can be taught, thought of as very abstract and highfalutin if they're not yeah. connected with their daily lives do you, do you have an approach, or does Humanist UK have an approach to how you kind of connect with people to make them realise how central these are to their lives, and actually they do do these things anyway.
1: Well, people, of course, I mean, the, the, the ty- there are times at which our community services come into contact for pe- with people when they need it. You know, so our celebrants who obviously are working with you know tens of thousands of families in grief um, after a death, or sometimes with people who are dying who are planning their own uh, funerals. And people at times of celebration, like marriage or the birth of a child, um, or the adoption of a child, and um, people uh, who are deprived of their liberty in prison or soon to be maybe deprived of their lives in hospitals or suffering deprivation in some other way that they need um, to work through. And then our programs that work with people who've um, left different religions, and we have peer support communities and um, other sorts of uh, emotional moral support for people who've left, especially high control religions. All of those community services, as well as the education work, of course, bring us into contact with people in uh, some of the most important moments, most significant moments of their lives. In terms of reaching out to others, that's obviously a harder ask, and I think that's sort of behind your question, isn't it? Is you're, you're asking, besides all that, <laughs> is there anything, is there any way that we sort of approach people and compel them to take it seriously but, but I guess uh, <laughs> yes, that is, I don't know how yeah. I to do that I mean you know mm-hmm. to some extent we're here um outside of the community services which includes education which is big you know division we don't go and sort of trouble people on the doorstep and say have you heard
0: did you know you might be a humanist I think it's more about how do you how do you articulate the work and its importance to make it relevant to people in their daily lives because clearly, clearly, uh, clearly when you're having face-to-face contact with people, like you're providing some sort of services within a hospital, people clearly need that. You know, your grandmother's dying and you're talking to your humanist uh, chaplain. Clearly you're getting a, a massive amount of value from that. You can see how that's relevant to your life. But then when you're looking at sort of the broader areas of it, how can you make those connect with people's day-to-day issues and concerns?
1: Well, obviously a lot of people do look for resources online, and we, we are starting to grow our provision there. Um, increasingly we're starting to invest in local connections, you know, community groups. We've had a pilot last year of five new, they're called branches internally, but they're not called branches externally, so they're more like communities externally in places like Liverpool and Chester. And and then in the next year, we're running another five. Um, and th- those groups have been very interesting because they've brought people together and they've brought people together with, you know, different purposes. So there's definitely been an element of personal development for people that they've wanted to learn more about their own, Beliefs and values, and you know, develop as people, and then. But there's also been a the provision of like-minded fellowship. So there's been a genuine sort of group community aspect to it, and then there's also been an outward-looking sort of social action element to it for a lot of a lot of a lot of those groups as well, which has been interesting. So we've been providing opportunities to people not just to sort of grow personally and to connect with like-minded people, but also to be involved in social action out, outward-facing. Um, I suppose in that nexus of um, community um, we're making these things real for people
0: yeah so it's about that approach is about getting people involved in the from the local community not necessarily people who already identify as humanists or no, humanistic not. beliefs mm. but just about you know wanting to get involved socially or wanting to help people locally or something like that and actually they then recognize through this, interaction with other people that perhaps, you know, they do. have yeah. These views.
1: yeah. 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 I think that's right. So living those things out, it often makes you realize uh, something um, about what you yourself think. Otherwise, I mean, as you know, as, as, uh, as well as anyone to sort of to, to reach out online is very difficult because you're sort of, you're, you're, to a large extent, um, reliant on what people are searching for as right. much as what you're offering. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What are the biggest challenges? You think you face in your work?
1: That's a difficult question to answer because there's so much different work. I mean, we haven't talked at all about the um, campaigning work that we that we do, the advocacy work that we do, um, which I think is actually one of the biggest ways in which we you know, make people's lives better. Because if you can make policy changes, obviously at a national level, as we have when we successfully have, you know, evolution including the primary curriculum or creationism outlawed in state schools or humanism added into the religious education curriculum or opt-out, organ donation schemes introduced, you know, a lot of campaigning work that has been successful over the decades. I think that um, the challenges in that area are very different from the challenges that we face in, you know,
0: the wider communication of humanism or in pastoral support or in ceremonies. So let's let's talk about the political side then, because that's very interesting. So okay. has the atmosphere in which you're working politically made it harder or easier for you to do things? Is it... Is it is it more pro or mm. anti-humanist at the moment? Well, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think there are two
1: tendencies at the moment working their way through society and politics, which one of which is helpful and one of which is unhelpful. The helpful one is, of course, that there is it's incontrovertible that religion is not going to be the future of this society. That there is a long-term unstoppable Seemingly unstoppable, of course, never say never, but seemingly unstoppable trend towards non religious identities, non religious beliefs, non religious values. And it's, you know, if you look at the, the data on people who are under 35, it's not just a majority, it's an overwhelming majority of people. Um, and even, you know, generally, um, less than a fifth of people in this country now have, have religious beliefs. So although they still might have a cultural identity, perhaps, it's just not how they make sense of the world, right? That's just not how it's, how it's happening for people. And that because that, that, that reality is now so incontrovertible, it is beginning to make itself felt in policy-making circles. It has to. So an increasing uh, number of uh, political and civil society audiences are interested in working out how they respond to that growing um, non-religious segment in the population. And that's a positive trend, Hmm. because although we don't and would never um, claim to represent in any sense all all those non-religious people, we are one of the few organisations, perhaps the only organisation, that has a genuinely expert research and policy base about them. Right, so I mean right. we we know um we know the non-religious uh in, in 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 data um in terms of their practices we do provide a large number of their funerals and weddings um you know as you may know or your, your listeners may know um in Scotland now for example um there are more legal humanist marriages than there are any of the religious marriages. So I mean it's it's and those people aren't members of a humanist organisation. Those people who are marrying or having our funerals or whatever are just non-religious people making use of our service. So we do know the non-religious. And so that, that has helped our work in that an increasing number of policy audiences and civil society organisations and other stakeholders um, are open to our involvement and our expertise. So that's a positive trend.
0: So that's that's and the plus side. That's the
1: plus side. Um, the negative side, I think, is... a. Uh, is a, I think of it as a malaise, but I'm trying to find a more neutral word, uh, uh, a tendency um, in society at the moment now as well to sort of be a bit inward-looking and a bit closed down. And I think that some of the political manifestations of that are sort of you know increased nationalism and tribalism and anti-cosmopolitanism. But they're just some of the symptoms of it. I think there's a general sort of backward-looking tendency and we see this in politics, I think, in the sort of assertions of politicians who, because um, I'm, I'm answering your question specifically about what the bad, what the challenges are for our political work. Yes, sure. We see that in politics with uh, statements like, you know, Britain's a Christian country, um, which not the present prime minister, who is Boris Johnson, by the way, for listeners who might be listening after the election or a future election, or <laughs> probably, probably listen, still
0: be Boris Johnson, actually. People listening at 100 years time. In 100 years, years time be, yes, with yes, Mr. Boris
1: God. Johnson. Um, He hasn't said it's a Christian country. I think he probably thinks it isn't, actually. But his predecessor and her predecessor both made quite a bit of hay out of talking about the UK as a Christian country. And that rhetoric, I think, speaks of uh, an underlying tendency of backward-lookingness, of sort of... An attempt to retrench, you know, ironically, something that can't be defended because it isn't, isn't
0: coming back. Is um, it part of a general sort of battening up the hatches back to traditional values? Almost? I think yes, traditional
1: values is a good way of thinking about it actually because I think it is a global trend. And the, the language of traditional values, which you see now everywhere from India to Russia to China, um, the language of traditional values to try and stem the tide of freedom <laughs> and secularization and, and global connectedness. Is definitely a common theme. So yeah, that's a good, a good, a good way of looking at it. And that's negative for our work, absolutely, because yeah. our work is based on common humanity, um, a certain, you know, an acceptance of the interconnectedness of human people, uh, an anti-tribalism, and concepts of freedom and fairness and justice that are, you know, entirely um, secular social constructs. And so things that move against those principles also tend to prevent our work from being as successful as it should be.
0: I think one thing as well about the uh, the traditionalism is that you know, it was almost a fear of modernity, yeah, a fear of the world moving on and accepting it as it is. And yeah. I think that's what perhaps humanism is very good at of saying: well, take the world as it is and try and find what the reality is that you're living in. And we do move on.
1: And I mean, we are we have always been ahead of the curve. In in in, in, the, in, in that's true and quite avant-garde. I mean, some of the things that we were advocating in the sixties, you know, are only now happening, like same-sex marriage or divorce law. Liberalisation, or, you know, stuff with human tissues or abortion law reform and so on. Um, and I think humanists have will have a tendency, I think, to be forward-looking because there is a certain optimism that comes with confidence in humanity, you know. Um, and I think that that tends to carry you forward rather than make
0: you look backwards. Would you say there's an obvious sort of political position that the organisation has?
1: Well... Bertrand Russell used to say that, you know, one of the... In fact, he went so far as to say that one of the main constituents of humanism was a certain liberalism. Conventionally, people say that, you know, humanism is something about morality, i.e., you know, you think it comes from human beings and social instincts rather than outside, something about meaning, you think that we're making the meaning rather than discovering it, and something about reality, you know, we understand reality through science rather than through revelation. But Bertrand Russell wanted to add a sort of fourth something about politics. I mean, we are liberals, you know, we think that every human being should have freedom to develop their idea of the good life up to the limits of the rights and freedoms of others, you know. And that's, that is a basic political idea. I think you couldn't, I think it'd be very hard to defend a humanist worldview that didn't have that liberal idea um, as part of it. But that minimal liberalism is actually shared by a large number of political ideologies. I mean, you could be a a member of the Conservative Party and believe that. That's true. A member true. of the Labour or the Liberal Democrat Party and believe that. That so goes across the liberal.
0: mainstream political spectrum, doesn't it? That in this sense country, yeah. of broad liberalism. Yeah. yeah,
1: it does. And then, of course, I think so. You would then lose. You know, you would lose your humanist at the point where you know, in, the, in in conservative circles, you were going, you know, big C conservative, genuinely backward-looking, you know, non-rationally, romantically looking back to the past and trying to defend non-rationally defensible social institutions, or if you were, you know, on the strongly economically liberal side, you might lose your humanist at the moment when you began to think that it was acceptable for one person's freedom to lead to another person's complete beggarment and complete poverty. And you might lose your humanist on the, on the, um, uh, on the left-wing side, I suppose, when on the Labour side, when that started to move into, you know, state control over your life, you know, the, a reduction in freedom. But I think within the, the main political ideological spectrums of, of at least our country and, and probably the broader Western world at the moment, you know, you find a comfortable humanist position um, within those three uh, spectrums. But then if, if they move in either of those three directions, as I as I've said, towards a sort of extreme economic liberalism or an extreme state control or an extreme um, romantic conservatism, that's when you'd fall away, I think, the humanist.
0: This is, I suppose, the big question looking forward. Where do you see Humanist UK in the next 10 years?
1: That's the sort of question where I ought to be able to give an inspirational answer, but I don't. <laughs> this, is, this is your I big finale. Believe, no, this, Andrew, this was this
0: is is the last, yeah, I know,
1: the, 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 the finale, but I genuinely think that, that Humanist UK at the moment has um, got most things right and it's a, it's a case of scaling it up. I think that. In pastoral support, you know, we should be in every every patient and every prisoner should have access to our pastoral support. Um, our ceremonies should be more widely available than they are. You know, every school people should be learning um, about humanism. Um, every person in in need from a extreme religion that they've left should be able to access our support. You know, that's what I I, I I think. And of course, we should be able to achieve all of our public policy aims, which will take you know at least another thirty years. I think though that the the area where we're not um as strong as we, as we should be, is in that difficult area that you pointed out earlier in our conversation of reaching people in their lives and, and bringing them into active contact um, with this way of looking at the world that is life enhancing. You know You live a better life with eyes open, able to think about um, your values and the source of them. Not obsessively, you know, not to the extent that you you build some grand theoretical narrative and forget about living. But you know coherently and I think that our challenge in the coming years but hopefully one that we will meet will be finding vehicles for achieving that you know putting people in, in in contact with their own beliefs and values but through the medium of learning more about humanism I think is the difficult nut to crack and I don't think that that's straightforward for any organizational movement that wants to talk about an idea I mean right up until the 1950s um, we as an organisation had a congregational model of trying to reach people in that way. You know, we ran literal sort of um, secular churches, you know, ethical chapels they were called. Um, that doesn't work. Um, what, what, what are the analogues uh, today for that? I suppose that we'll end up doing more online. Well, I think the local groups hold a, a source of success in this area as well.
0: What would you say was the vision of the world you would like to see? That's a strange question,
1: you know, I think for a humanist. I think humanists have to be to some extent uh, pragmatic as well as visionary and understand that you know you, there's no such thing as utopia um, and a perfect world will never be. Um, I'd like to see a fairer world, a, for, a world where people are more free, a more equitable world, um, and a world where people are more optimistic. And I think I'd like to see a world where, People understood the essential unity of humanity in a way that they don't today um, and that we might even be moving uh, away from today. That would be a better world, but they'll never be a perfect one.
0: So that was my conversation with Andrew Copson. Many thanks to him for his time. I found it fascinating and could have chatted with him for hours longer so perhaps we might do another episode with him later in the series. That would probably be useful, actually, as it's difficult to do justice to the sheer range of initiatives that Humanists UK have and the topics that they cover. We touched on several of them in the conversation, from ceremonies to pastoral care to their political lobbying work, and it's clear that they're making a profound difference in many people's lives, regardless of their religious beliefs or lack of them. I think one of the most important things that Humanists UK can do in the coming years is to try to reach more people and show how their work is relevant to their lives. The majority of people in the UK now describe themselves as non-religious, yet there are very few non-religious institutions around that provide support to people in living good lives or tackling the bigger questions of life in the way that religions might have done for people in the past. This type of public outreach work is critical in helping people live happier, better informed and kinder lives as well as in building a better society generally. I think Humanist UK has an important role to play here, alongside organisations like the not-for-profit I founded to help people live wiser, more fulfilled lives called Life Squared. However it chooses to move forward from now, I think the work of Humanist UK is only going to get more important in the future. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like and subscribe to it, and share it with people you know. I'll be back soon with another one. See you then.